The following podcast is made in partnership with Zinc VC. Arguably, the greatest innovation challenge humankind has ever faced is staring us in the face. The world has reportedly seven years to halve global greenhouse gas emissions. Climate tech is defined as technologies that are explicitly focused on reducing GHG emissions or addressing the impacts of global warming. Can scaling climate tech save the world? The amount of focus from the investor community would make us believe that yes. In its State of Climate Tech Report 2021, PwC reported a 210% year-on-year global growth in investment, with at the time, 14 cents of every venture capital dollar going to climate tech. But is all that glitters gold? I'm speaking with climate tech warrior Shante Harris, a thought leader in this space. Throughout her career, she has successfully scaled nationwide campaigns, technologies and ideas for the Obama administration, Fortune 500 companies and startups. Named by Greenbiz as a 30 under 30, NASTEC as Women to Watch in 2022, America on Tech as an Innovator and Disruptor, and Women E-News as a pioneering woman in sustainability, Shante Harris is at the helm of driving climate innovation, building sustainable cities, advancing cross-sector collaboration, and tapping into community to launch better solutions and technologies. Currently, she is the Director of Climate Investment and Partnerships for Climate Tech at Second Muse. Second Muse is an impact and innovation company that supports entrepreneurs and the ecosystems around them. She is currently spearheading the development of a global investor network, convening over 100 of the top climate and climate curious investors and providing them with the tools they need to deploy more than 17 billion of capital committed to climate solutions in 2021 alone. And if that doesn't keep her busy enough, She's also the co-founder of Women of Colour Collective in Sustainability, the only global digital collective and community that is 100% dedicated to advancing women of colour working across the sustainability industry. Since its launch in the summer of 2019, the community has brought together over 5,000 women of colour through virtual and in-person events, social media, a hiring platform and an online publication. She is based in New York and sits on the advisory committee of Governor's Island Climate Centre and the Board of Summit Impact. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm, I know how busy you are at the moment, but I'm super excited to have you on the podcast. So for those who are listening to the podcast and they don't know much about this climate tech space, it would be really great if you could just explain exactly kind of what climate tech is and maybe give us some examples of maybe like really cool things that are happening in the space right now. Sure. Yeah. I um I think climate tech doesn't have one definition and and that's sort of where the confusion comes from whether you're in the industry or not. Um, across the board, though, what I like to tell people is, you know, all tech is created by humans, whether we're talking about, you know, social media platforms or the electric vehicle charging station technology that we need for uh, car transitioning to more renewable energy. So I think 
the best definition is really that climate tech is any technology that enables a an energy transition that is just and equitable. Um, that doesn't mean that we're always building because we're human things that are just and equitable. So I think it always comes back to humans because technology doesn't just, you know, appear <laughs> out of thin air. We build it and um, humans are the ones that are designing the algorithms, uh, creating the products and ultimately deploying them. So a lot of what I talk about and the way that I define climate tech is you know, technology enabled and built by humans that are, that is leading us into the next wave of energy transition. And, you know, your profile in this space is, um, you know, is really quite impressive. Maybe you could just talk us a bit through, you know, some of the things that have led you to where you are today in terms of your career path. I think there are people who maybe go out their way to be seen as, you know, the forefront of an industry and build a profile. Uh, Really, my experience has been always um, kind of behind the scenes, actually, as a strategist and really looking to solve problems. I'm a problem solver at heart. Um, I love the idea that we can, you know, take a huge challenge and break it down into micro tasks that, you know, pretty much anyone can be a part of. Uh, So I think accessibility is really important to me. And because I've approached it that way, I think it's made room and space for other people to see themselves as part of this industry, which is really important to me. Um, I entered into the space actually from a pretty unconventional background. So um, I do think in the climate tech space, we're starting to see more profiles like this. But particularly when we talk about technology, you know, I wasn't an engineer. I wasn't a UX UI designer. I didn't think I'd ever be in the VC or investment world. Um, I actually started out launching national issue-based campaigns in Washington, D.C. on everything related to higher education debt. Um, Actually, at that time, Vice President Biden's It's on a Sexual Assault campaign um, focused on, you know, decreasing the amount of sexual assault on college campuses um, and really looking at how do you build, I think, both momentum and movements around really huge challenges and issues that uh, particularly the U.S. was facing. Uh, that led me to do a lot of other political wonky things when I was living in D.C. Um, I always tell people it was quite a magical time. It was during the Obama years. And so uh, there were just a lot of young people <laughs> running around D.C. <laughs> really feeling empowered to make an impact. And we were, you know, we were on the Hill. We were working on at least, you know, I was working on economic development policy with late Congressman John Conyers. I worked on a B bill. So that might've been my first foray into kind of environmental work. Um, And then I actually worked for one of the only woman owned fundraising boutique firms in DC. So had all of these very um, varying experiences in Washington DC, but they were all embedded in kind of the public sector um, or NGOs that were building impact. I started to feel like I was in a bit of a bubble, um, as I think it can feel when you're particularly doing work that is about social impact, when you're doing work that involves government, and wanted to challenge myself to get out of that bubble. I ended up getting accepted into a fellowship program based out of New York, where I worked across sectors for about uh, nine months and left that experience just feeling like I owed it to myself, but also to the change that I wanted to see in the world to really push myself out of my comfort zone. Um, I ended up meeting this man named Tom Gray. He recruited me to come work with him at an urban strategy and political consulting firm. And that was actually my foray into both climate and technology. We launched our first business strategy practice focused on scaling um, technologies across 
at first global corporations that were more established. And then that led to growth stage and early stage companies. And then over time, we launched our first energy environment sustainability, now climate practice. I did that for four and a half years. And what we noticed was there was a gap in the market. So a lot of times we talk about policy in one bubble or one silo and then tech in another. But the reality is that most deep tech, hard tech or physical products, right? So think of EV charging station actually need policy to scale and be successful. And so uh, we were building out go-to-market strategy with this idea that government and policy had to be a part of, you know, successfully seeing them enter a new market, which historically hasn't necessarily been Silicon Valley's way, right? It's been disrupt, um, you know, ask for permission later and not really thinking about all of the unintended consequences, but also from a business perspective, you know, all of the liabilities and taking that approach of saying, hey, we'll we'll hopefully get folks on board later. If we piss a couple people off, it's fine. We're just going to keep scaling. Um, I think what I saw, my team saw was that that didn't work. And also, if we were going to scale technologies as quickly as possible that were actually having an impact, we had to do it with place in mind and community in mind. Um, so that was really my foray into climate tech. Um, I started to talk about it in part because one, I realized my approach worked. Uh, we were actually seeing technologies not only deploy at a faster rate, but also do it in a way that actually took into account community and place-based innovation, which I felt was deeply important. I think, you know, I ended up launching a global collective for women of color working in sustainability um, in part to diversify the space. I was quite sick of being the only woman and the only black woman in the room. And so uh, that was my foray into saying, hey, how can I bring more community into this work? Uh, so fast forward to now, you know, I run this climate tech venture studio and it's just been really interesting because I am still trying to wrap my head around being like the cool person, you know, people didn't really want to talk about infrastructure or transportation <laughs> or buildings, you know, when I was doing this work and now it's like all the rave. So I think it's quite interesting, you know, being at the helm of really pushing technology and innovation in a way that again, honors place. Um, also just, I think disrupts what Silicon Valley viewed as disrupting. So I talk a lot about how VC investment how really any financial investment in climate technologies has to have a bit more support for the founders that are building so that they're actually able to be successful because we can't afford to see the same failure rate that we see in the startup community across other verticals within venture capital. Um, so yeah, that's kind of been my, my journey. You know, I, I hopped around a little bit in telling that story, but um, it is really important to me that I emphasize that you don't have to come from from this like traditional technology background. You don't even necessarily have to come from a climate science background, which I think is, is what a lot of people feel like they need in order to enter the space. Um, I think a lot of the skills that we already have are transferable into climate tech. And so I know myself and a lot of other people have been making it a point to inspire, but also to encourage others to enter the space. Wow. I should have grabbed a pen then to like write down the 50 questions that I had because it was <laughs> really excite insightful. Um, there's a couple of things that I would love to pick up on that. So the first one is yeah. in talking talking of kind of new terminology, have you heard of the term ecosystem builder? 
Yes. So on my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> so I read an article last week, which basically said, if you recognize yourself as any of these things, like please change your LinkedIn profile to an ecosystem builder. Mm-hmm. And I did it recently as well, because it's really an emerging discipline. And what I'm hearing from you is this kind of, um, and I hear from a lot of our guests, is really this person who sits amongst a lot of, of you're almost imagining yourself kind of in a courtroom, you know, and around you, you can look to government and then you look to investment and you look to founders and you're, kind of inherently feminine actually and empathetic like kind of carrying a lot of these worlds around you Mm. and almost like visioning like okay well this needs to connect to this and this needs to connect to that and sitting amongst them and so I see that in a lot of warrior women is that kind of uh the conduit to these worlds and seeing them and actually what you're holding it seems and I recognize again in everyone else's I speak to is this kind of is actually the impact which is Mm -hmm. it's pulling all of that to to actually lead to change it's actually to make stuff happen and so what I would love for you to share is can you think of an example and kind of shutting your eyes imagining yourself you know with like Obama's there and like the biggest VC you've ever spoken to in climate tech is there and then there's, you know, I don't know, like a mother of three who's got a great idea in West, Con- you know, Wisconsin about how to do something. Can you think of an example in your work where you kind of pulled all of those things together? It might not be what you're doing now, which is a really good example because we hear terms like place-based, communities, VC, and I just love stories. So maybe there's a story you can tell us of almost like the founder who had this idea, you know, then who we spoke to, then how we got it to policy. And is there anything that's kind of coming up as a really good example of like all of those nodes, all of those, that ecosystem joining to actually lead to impact? Yeah, I love that question. I I think it's a great question because it's honestly what I do every day. (laughs) So that is the scope of my work. Uh, So a clear example, and this was actually years ago, before I started running the venture studio I run now, um, I was working with a carbon offset startup, which at that time, no one was really talking about carbon offsets or carbon offset startups. Um, now you see them everywhere, everywhere, excuse me, there's a huge conversation around carbon offset tech platforms, right, that are adding more transparency and verification methods. Um, what was interesting about this startup that I worked with was you know, the founder realized years ago that the existing carbon offsets marketplace was not legitimate, right? And that there was actually a huge issue around actually verifying projects that carbon offsets were going to. And so what the founder ended up doing was creating a unique algorithm that allowed for carbon offsets to be applied to green infrastructure projects that were deployed and created locally. Um, And so one thing that my team and I did with him was not only support him in continuing to build out the algorithm, but we made it specific to New York where he was trying to scale. So who are the players? Who are the funders? Who are the people who are actually a part of, you know, looking at the carbon offsets market? And around that time, New York City had just brought together a number of businesses that had signed on to a carbon pledge. And so what we did was approach those entities, right, and say, hey, you signed on to a carbon pledge. We have a unique solution that actually is verifiable, has a real impact because it's in the local community where you're, you know, pledging that you're going to ultimately use these carbon offsets. Um, And we were able to close in on a public-private partnership that um, accelerated and protected the deforestation efforts that were already taking place in New York City, for example. Uh, We were also able to work with a Fortune 500 company in support of that project and bring in 
um, a, a, a partnership with Etsy, as well as another large nonprofit that was actually launched during Mayor uh, Bloomberg. So I think when we talk about, I like that example, because when we talk about you know, what does it look like for a startup to scale in this space? It's like, great, you have your product, you've built an amazing marketplace. That that specific product happened to be a software plat- platform, right? But in order for it to be successful, the founder had to actually find and aggregate local projects that he could verify. And then he had to sell those projects to corporates, right? And then government also had to have buy-in in terms of, you know, being a part of, you know, whether that was the announcement or just building incentives around uh, people getting excited for the projects. So if you take that example, you have a startup, you have uh, his investors, you have his customers, which were oftentimes corporates or not-for-profits, and then you had government who played a role in actually creating the market because they were behind the carbon pledge. So for most startups, that's their story in this space. Series two of the Warrior Women podcast is made in partnership with Zinc VC, a London-based venture capital firm. Zinc are currently looking for 70 talented individuals to participate in a 12-month venture program aimed at transforming the sectors most impacting the environment. This is a real opportunity for impact-driven individuals to access expert support and up to £250,000 in financial backing to build a venture from scratch. And brilliantly, over 50% of founders on their last venture builder were women. Go to zinc.vc for more information on how to apply. I wanted to talk to you about talent. So we had a a super interesting conversation previously. So uh, I'll kick this off by saying that when I was at Tech Week, I spoke to somebody who um, shared with me that they felt that climate tech is very much being heralded as kind of the darling of like, almost like the new kind of darling of Silicon Valley filled with a lot of men who are sort of empire building. Um, And as a result, there's still a conversation. And, uh, you know, this is a provocation more than me saying that it is how it is. But I know that you'll present an interesting response to this, is that it's still very much like we're looking for people who, you know, have run successful startups before. We're looking for, you know, high growth founders who've been successful, who've probably worked at Facebook, whatever, who've got this kind of sexy tech And yet, when I spoke to you, you shared some really amazing example. I think there was one, I can't remember the exact example, but you were talking about a kind of woman who was in her town and had noticed something about a gas station and maybe that rings a bell, like an opportunity. And there's this kind of tension that I keep having. And I I guess I'm kind of constantly asking people about it because, you know, I am like quite intuitive and like when something starts to you know irritate me like a bit of sand in your sock or something like oh there's something there there's something there and like the way that I uncover how I think is just talking to interesting people notes starting this podcast and it just feels like you know the model the VC model that we're still existing in is kind of like still very much like find that billion dollar idea scale it globally and like scale makes so much sense right if something's like you know electric vehicle is being developed for the first time in you know one city and it's having an impact and of course we should scale it but then there's this kind of like community levels smaller changes that actually you know 50,000 100,000 or some support could like really change something and 
that infrastructure seems to still be very much like it's sort of friends and family grant funding maybe and so there just feels like it's like do have we all committed to unless it's going to be globally massive scaling that's really how we're going to have change or is there still a conversation to be had about like little changes everywhere can mean a big thing and i'm just wondering like what your take is it's not a very good it's not a really a, a well-formed question but is that kind of the elephant in the room still in the vc space that it's like it is still about empire building it's, it's still about being able to say like oh we found the next facebook we found the next whatever no one's really that interested to say oh, you know what, like we found a way for a whole town to become more like self-sufficient on their food growing. Um, and yeah. is that, you know, maybe we can say, well, that's NGOs, that's not for profit, that's charity. But yeah, just what's coming up for you when you hear me kind of talking about this? I think it's really important. And I'll start by saying that tension, I believe, is really healthy. Um, I think as someone who's been in the climate space, and I already started to talk a little bit about this, if we're not asking the reason why we're doing it and consistently coming back to that question, um, then I think we are going to 100% miss the mark, right? Whether you're focusing on a small local project that's going to have a huge impact for that community, or you're focusing on a technology that is being deployed in a community and now is scaling up into multiple communities, um, I do think a lot of what I've tried to communicate, which I think is important here, is that the technology is not separate from the local impact. Um, sometimes it is. I'll say that where I focus, most of the companies and the, the founders that we are supporting, one, um, pretty much all of our founders are either first-time founders or they are founders that are coming out of the industry as experts out of the labs as scientists and PhDs. Um, I think that's important to note because it means that they really know their stuff, right? Like we, we emphasize the people because ultimately the person has to understand not only the technology and the solution they're building, but also the impact of it. Um, we're very bullish on GHG um, impact metrics. Uh, if I'm being frank, we could be doing more. I keep going back to funding because doing more requires funding and capacity, right? Um, that being said, you know, all of our solutions have to go through a really rigorous GHG impact metric assessment, which for their stage is 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 quite ambitious. You know, like most of them have not raised. If they have raised, they've only raised non-dilutive capital under a million dollars. Their team is most likely not more than four to five people. Um, they're still in prototype and iteration phase, and we're having them walk through a very extensive analysis of what their GHG impact will be. Um, there's a lot of important dialogue around how GHG shouldn't be the only metric that we hone in on. And I do agree with that. I think we're at a very interesting time within climate and climate technology, where there is a an overwhelming amount of KPIs mm -hmm. um, that both founders and professionals in the space are having to navigate. So it makes it quite difficult to know not only what should we be measuring, but the how, right? Because it takes time, it takes um, it takes intention, it takes aggregation. And I think what we have to grapple with as a community and as folks who work in this space is how do we, you know, keep our integrity while also acknowledging 
We are right now dealing with a real crisis. Um, We can't let perfect stop us from moving forward. And so I think that this tension is really that, right? How do we move forward, but also how do we ask those really important questions? Um, And so it's really important to me that when we talk about the tech, you mentioned electric vehicle charging stations. That was the example I mentioned before. Two community organizers based out of LA have built a company called Charger Help. Uh, The entire company is actually built on a software solution that tells um, dispatchers in real time and technicians in real time what EV charging stations are working or not working. And that matters because historically, many solutions, despite the fact that we know women and low-income communities and communities with people of color are most disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis, a lot of technology solutions are still being deployed to predominantly white communities. Um, And so now that, you know, a place like LA actually has charging stations across the city, it matters that they're working in the communities where they're needed most, right? Um, And so what that founder is doing is not only, you know, identifying a need, right, in the space to say, hey, how do you tell in real time what's working? But they also have launched an entire workforce development program that upskills workers into fixing, right, like actually fixing those charging stations. And that matters because, yes, it's a tech solution but it's also a workforce development solution. It's also a climate mitigation solution. Um, It's also looking at community development. And so I think when we talk about tech, that's why I keep coming back to people build tech, people deploy tech, because I think we, we... we have a tendency as as just hum- humanity to forget that the products and the technology that are being built are built by humans. So I think it's really important that we're acknowledging that tension that, you know, this person mentioned to you, it's a really important intention. And I think the only other big thing that's important to say is, um, I think the stat might've went up, but when I checked in 2020, I believe, you know, 96% of asset allocators, right? So folks who manage money are men. And this matters because when VCs are raising money, you know who they're pitching to? Men, whether they're a man, a woman, a person of color. And so I, I think when we talk about the VC model and what is or isn't happening, we also have to go to the root of like the landscape, the larger picture. Um, a lot of emerging VC funds run by women, run by people of color, have a hard time raising their first fund, right? And even when they raise their first fund, they're raising significantly less than a white man. This has been proven in studies by Stanford, Harvard, across the board, white men raise more money for their VC funds than any other demographic. And that matters because if white men are the ones who are dictating the way that products get built and deployed, yeah, we are going to miss the mark in terms of, you know, how we're scaling, how we're building, how we're deploying. So I think we, when we talk about VC as a model, um, VC as a model is also the way it works is that the person who's running the fund, the person who's building the thesis has a lot of oversight on what does and doesn't happen. And so in order for us to see more innovative models in VC, but also just across the finance space, it means we need more asset allocators that are women, that are people of color, that are actually representative of the folks who are impacted. So I think that's important to state because um, 
if we're going to talk about changing the model, we also have to talk about who is funding the model and who is ultimately the who what is the demographic of the people who get to say whether a fund gets funded and, you know, has the success that it can have simply because of, you know, implicit bias or lack of understanding mm-hmm. or not being able to see the vision that that person has, uh, which is extremely critical. Right. So um, a lot of what we're seeing around fund managers and VC funds from underrepresented communities is the same dialogue we're having for founders that are having a hard time raising and getting the support we need. So, you know, systems. (laughs) It's just like wild to me still that, you know, if I always say this because I'm on the steering committee for She Changes Climate, which, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the leadership team who will be at Egypt this year is still predominantly, you know, men. It's just wild to me that, and I really mean this with all integrity and i've said this before like if it was all women i would be campaigning for a more diverse leadership team and that's what's often missed it's almost like you know we're coming from some sort of like patriarchal annoyance and it's just like sensible you know it's like (laughs) with you know we have different experiences of lives depending on you know um our class you know even us our schooling the color of our skin you know our parenting everything and it's like everyone who's done any innovation knows that you know in order to see a previously unseen way to solve a problem you need like diverse you know data sources let's call them and um Mm -hmm. i you know i hear a lot about this i'm almost the conversation is just it's just been going on for so, so long with so little change. Yeah. You know, I, the last um, interview that I did was with Julia Collins, who started a, a business called Planet Forge, <laughs> the first black woman, you know, tech founder yeah. um, to found a unicorn. And yeah. what has been really insightful for me is when I speak to women who have founded, they've kind of beaten the statistics, let's say, the kind of leader they are has bigger impact than just the investment they're getting. The kind of leader that Julia is, the way she talks about how she's building her organization is distinctly different from the organizations that have been built historically. And I'm not talking about this, like, you know, she's not just really kind and really lovely. She is valuing talent and seeing her talent as complete individuals. She's building a structured organization that enables them to bring really their full potential. And her mm-hmm. company is doing well because of that. And so I feel like it's not just about the solutions. It's about the kind of organizations and how there's a conscious kind of awakening going on about the culture of the of these companies. So yes we need more women we need more women of color um in the funding space but i think it's also asking about okay but beyond you know these big solutions what you're talking about is that you're developing a very different way of doing vc right because of who you are so this you know your squiggly career you might say like your diverse background (laughs) Julia is developing an incredibly different way to decarbonize supply chain, which is going to have a massive effect globally. It's already changing the consumer. So it comes back to, as you say, like being able to take a kind of, it's almost just stepping bit about from money and saying like money is one way of looking at success, but we're actually in a point of a revolution where we're trying to transform a society. And one of the systems we're trying to 
transform is like organizations, like businesses, like sectors. And, you know, like her employees aren't burning out. They're able to have children if they want. Their partners are happier, you know, like it's, and and it's like, it's a whole, it's a really, really big question. But my question to you is like, she's an example of breaking the odds. You're an example of breaking the odds. Like, can you give us like any tips like so you know for any um mothers any non-binary folk women who are like do you know what i worked in government i've i was head of you know goldman sachs or whatever and like i feel like i could do this how how have you been successful like in you know because you are managing to get funding right for you like what do you like what's your like top tips like how are you doing that because i asked julia the same question and actually her colleague who joined as well um and it was really interesting so the question i asked her was what about you has made you successful and then also like what how are you showing up differently so she talked a bit about like how she runs her organization that you mm-hmm. think is really you know it's a way to break the statistic like how are you getting this funding like how are you getting people to believe in you i'm just really curious you might say obama's making all my calls for me i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i wish obama was making all my calls for me if you can make that happen that would be incredible. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i um i think it's a really great question also i love julia i'm not sure if kylan joined yeah, she as did. well yeah, she with did. her um, but yeah, they're two incredible women that are um, that ground me in this work, and we, um, I think, we're able to exist because we have each other. Oh, honesty. That's um, interesting. So, so, is, is there actually a community of kind of Black women that you are part of that you would say? Well, I run. Yeah, so I run Women of Color Collective and Sustainability. Um, a lot of women of color. So I think I told you a little bit about that, but yeah. that's a five thousand women of color community wow. across the globe where we, you know, not only build community but support them in their own transitions, their own career journeys through a hiring and job matching platform. And I always get all these thank yous and notes of gratitude, which I really appreciate. And I always tell every other woman of color in this space, and this probably resonates with you, that you know, I really created the community. I wish. I had. I was so lonely. I was so tired. I was so burnt out. And um, I was tired. I was really tired of kind of being that voice and also like, you know, always navigating the spaces of what to say, what not to say, how to say it, you know, what's going to land. And it can be quite exhausting, as I'm sure you and your members Mm -hmm. and this incredible community is is experiencing on a day to day. Um, So it is really important to have spaces like this, right? I mean, hands down, community is I think one of the single most important things that you can provide anyone who's trying to build and trying to think outside the box and is curious. Um, but to answer your question, which I think I believe was sort of what what has allowed me to, you know, create this life that I'm living and have the success that I've had in my career. Um, I think a lot of it has had to do with curiosity and not just curiosity for the sake of curiosity, but I've always had this inkling that there was other ways to do things. And that was born out of my childhood. Um, I always tell people that I come from a family of public servants. So my grandmother was both a nurse and a civil rights activist. Um, My mom was a medical assistant all of her career. My dad was a firefighter. So I never had this concept of like, 
okay, I'll do my career over here and then I'll have impact later. Or maybe I'll, you know, sit on a board of a nonprofit or a foundation, which yes, I do those things. But for me, my, my work was always going to be tied to a larger impact um, and asking critical questions about why we as humans do the things that we do, right? The way that we do them. And um, in large part, that comes from my grandmother. She is a very bold, courageous woman. You know, she was fighting for my rights before I was born at an age um, that I'm younger than now. And so I think I just never really knew a world where like courage and boldness wasn't a part of you creating a life for yourself. Um, and so that's manifested in, you know, me oftentimes really pushing the, 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 the buttons of folks, of ideas, of, you know, experiences that I'm having, because um, I think we oftentimes forget that we're living in the creation of ideas that came before us. And so that what that means is there's opportunities to create new ideas yes. and develop Hallelujah them. Hallelujah. And that. so I, I think about I that, think that all is, the time. Like it's like literally yeah. like it's just it's so my it's so freeing, isn't it, when you say, hang on, like sorry to interrupt, but I went to a women's equality No, you're fine. We were talking about the Met Police, which is really an institution that is like you know, really deep into misogyny and and uh, yeah. racism, really has some issues. And this woman stood up, and I'm sure I've, I'm going to bore listeners, those who listen all the time will probably hear the same stories, but about them saying, hey, you know, the Metropolitan Police was like created 200 years ago as an experiment, and it's a failed experiment. I just think like, that's so amazing when we look at like, how long has the education system like lasted? How long has the industrial age lasted? And it's just like... Mm-hmm this conscious awakening that I'm talking about, like not wanting to go like all Gabriel Bernstein on it, but like, it, <laughs> it's like, it's really, I think curiosity, you know, is definitely one of the makeups of the new way of thinking, but it's also just possibility. And it's like, we have to believe that something different is possible, but we also have to realize that we can't wait for other people to make things possible. And some right. of us have been gifted with, you know, upbringings let's say where we have these sort of matriarchs we have these you know i hope to be my my own daughter's ones we have these examples of like possibility like possibility from people who say like and you know you're obviously and all of the guests are just an amazing that's why the bore women podcast exists because it's like if they if these women can do it you know you can you know and kylan was talking about how she was homeless and she's from a low-income family and now she's like could basically be president if she wanted to and it's like <laughs> these are the stories that we need to hear so yeah, yeah not wanting to interrupt you but like as you say so part of it was coming from your grandmother and and that kind yeah. of success and the possible and possibility anything else that you kind of put it down to yeah well i, I wanted to also just say you know for those who are looking to find their own journey and their path. Um, I believe deeply in radical candor um, and transparency. And what I've, the the way that I live my life is um, I've chosen to have radical, radical candor and leadership. So whether that's in, you know, one-on-one coaching sessions with my founders and feedback for how they're doing things, uh, whether that's with my team, right? What are we, what are we doing that's, you know, powerful and impactful? What are we doing that can improve? Um, and also in my pitches, right, to funders and saying, hey, you all are doing X and it's it's been, you know, I'm sure an incredible journey and you've learned a lot. What would it look like for you to do Y, wow. right? And, and have a larger impact 
impact. And I think when we when we offer, you know, candor and feedback in a way that acknowledges the humanity of the other person, right? Um, I do believe it goes a long way. Um, I think a lot of us are living through our own failed experiments every day and trying and then learning and iterating. And so a lot of how I've approached the ability to build is saying, hey, you tried X, this is what went well. This is maybe what went not so well. So that opens up room for you to do something else and do it better. And I think the more that we make it okay <laughs> to have those types of conversations where we realize so much of the process of building and creating is learning and then unlearning, creating and then failing and then trying again, I think we'll we'll have more more of an appetite, but also just more of an ecosystem that's okay with trying new things, right? That's that's okay with building things and saying, hey, some of it is going to go really, really well. And I'm so excited to see what that is. And some of it may not go as well. And that's just a part of the human journey, right? Mm-hmm. But if we're stuck in doing one thing because we're too scared to try the next thing, we're not going to do any of the things that we say we care about. So um, you know, that we, is something that I bring to all of my work. You know, we hear that a lot. And I think as I was hearing it from you, I was kind of hearing it differently, actually, for the first time, mm. which is because we hear this test and learn. And, you know, we hear about organizations like, you know, for example, Microsoft is forever, whatever you think of Microsoft is, you know, quite famous for <laughs> learning culture. Um, other technology products are available. Um, the thing that strikes me is when we go back to that you know conversation about the metropolitan police in the uk being 200 years old is it's almost like we have to transition to this learning culture and this test and learn because what's happening is we're just holding so tightly what's always been right like Mm -hmm. oh we said we were going to do this and we've especially in our culture it's very british like oh we said we were going to do this and now we're going to do it for like 500 years and like (laughs) you know and it's just ego, right? A lot of it is just like ego. I was literally going to say ego, so thank and you. I'm like, part- how do we take ego out of leadership, mm-hmm. out of doing? I think that's so much of, like, I'm not afraid to tell my founder, hey, I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm happy to look into it or connect you to someone else that does. And yeah. I think so much of leadership has been the pretending that you know it all, that everything's going well, even when it's not. And yeah. I think the more that we usher in that leadership in ourselves, the more yeah. that we usher it into the, the founders that are building into the investors that are investing into the entire ecosystem, right? Mm. That is trying to do something different and better. Yeah. And this is what I was saying before about it's not just funding different solutions. It's funding different types of organizations, different types of leadership. Yeah. And of course, like, you know, if you're going to fund like someone who's grown up in an indigenous community, obviously the way that they run their climate tech startup is going to be culturally very different. Like, what can we learn from that? Like, it doesn't have to be something that feels because they're not based in like, you know, San Francisco, like, well, what implications might that have for what San Francisco companies can learn? And how do we have that? And, you know, I'm whether it's women, whether or not it's, you know, marginalized founders, communities, marginalized communities, like, we can learn so much from diversity. It's not just, you know, I kind of say like from people think it's the the right thing to do and it's really like the best thing to do because it's diversity of thought. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I'm kind of curious as well. I bet like in some of those presentations, going back to the ego where you're like, oh, you know, some of your stuff's going really well and some of your stuff's probably not going so well. I bet that has like quite a mixed response from people, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it's think about it from your like as a human, right? Like if someone's like, oh, you're doing this really well, and then this other thing not so well. I mean, it it takes. I think it's really hard for us to separate ourselves from, you know, our deliverables or the outcomes of our outputs, right, that we're doing every day. Um, But Jackie and I actually walk through that book, Radical Candor, with all of our founders and talk about the importance of radical candor, not only between our dynamic with the founders, but also the company that they're building, right, and how they want to support their employees. It sounds like Julia is building a company where radical candor is at the heart of it, right? And so what does it mean to have an amazing solution that's scalable and VC backable and is going to have incredible impact, but also to take care of the people that are working within the company in the process. And I think, you know, that's really important to Jackie and I, that we're building a model that allows founders to look at themselves and their startup from an entire kind of holistic perspective rather than, you know, just just scale, scale, do, 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 right? Iterate, iterate. It's like, well, what are you doing and what are you iterating on? And if it's not just, if it's only for the technology and not the people, um, it's going to miss the mark, right? Whether that's the mark of like the world that we want to live in in the future or even the mark of how you want to build and have the success of your business turn out long term. Mm-hmm. So um, I love everything that you said and I think it's it's super critical. And honestly, I'm excited that I have the platform to expand, you know, founders, but also the ecosystem's perspective mm-hmm. on how we can and should go about building in this space. Yeah, I think from your perspective, though, what I'm hearing is if the funding isn't there for the support and, you know, the the, the sponsor of this podcast is an amazing VC, Zinc VC in the UK, that is also looking mm-hmm. at a different model, is if the funding isn't there for you to do all of that, quote unquote, kind of care work is... right then we're all st- the issues still apply to you right so like you're still getting the investment and then as you said the kpi thing was really interesting because i hear all the time from organizations who are funding or from startup mm-hmm. you know founders this kpi overwhelm like i could spend right. the whole month just looking at like how to measure impact and still be completely confused about what the right thing to do is is mm-hmm. it's really important that we start funding that and recognizing that so i think what we need to start doing is looking at okay, well, and I love that you brought in that new factor into kind of how you described you. You're like, okay, well, what if we also applied this? But also like, mm-hmm. how do we measure that in your work? How do we measure that in your work so that we can then go yeah. forward to VCs in the future and say like, hey, we brought in this new factor into our work and our mm-hmm. and our business is overperforming other businesses by 2%, yes. 3%. Yeah, and not even just go to VCs, go to the LPs that fund the VCs, yeah. right? And I mean, that's actually a lot of what my team has been doing on the capital side because we actually work to design and launch new mechanisms. So I've been running a, an entire design lab for the past several months that brings together all the largest funders in climate and ask the question, how do we create a sustainable mechanism for early stage founders? And we use the word sustainable on purpose because it's not just financial su- sustainability, right? It's it's actually individual sustainability mm. for the founder themselves, right? And so what are we creating as a larger ecosystem? Um, and I'll, you know, without going too into the weeds about what's happening, I think it's really important that that work is happening, right? That people are being asked that question and brought into co-creation through the design labs that we lead lead to experience, but also explore what's possible. Um, And so, yes, I 100% believe that that data is going to not only inform, you know, how founders can get supported in the future, but also how the investors that fund those founders get supported in the future. So um, I keep coming back to layers, but. Well, I'd love to like follow that work. Please let me know how I can, you know, um, is any of it publicly available? 
available yet? Are you still doing a lot of the research? Not yet. It will. We're going to be releasing a report that'll go out to the entire ecosystem okay. and be accessible well, to everyone. Please send that to so. me. And my final yeah. question, which I ask every guest, is who are the other women and non-binary folk that we should be supporting in, in your space and we should know about, follow, share their their work and knowledge? Yeah, um, Mia, uh, and I'm blanking on her last name, but she's a partner at Lower Carbon Capital, which is Chris Saka's fund. She's incredible. She's another investor doing amazing work in this space. Um, also, Amy Dufar, who is a, a partner at Azola Ventures, mm-hmm. uh, which was born out of Prime Coalition. I don't know if you've heard of them. Incredible, incredible work. Um, and then, honestly, all of our founders. I know we talked a little bit about the founders that we support. We have a really diverse group of founders. So I always like to reiterate that we have women, we have people of color, uh, we have folks who come from various um, higher education institutions, right? So not just the elite Harvard, Stanford's mm-hmm. of the world, but also folks who are coming from universities and colleges that are state funded um, and folks who have worked across different verticals and are now in tech. So um, if that sounds interesting to you, if you're looking also for deal flow as an investor, would love to share our founders with you. And if you're considering your own founder journey, just take a look at the founders in our portfolio and hopefully that inspires you and encourages you to know that there's space for you in the climate tech world. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today and a special thank you for all the work you're doing as well. Thanks, Carla, for having me. I'm Carla Morales-Lee and you've been listening to Warrior Women Series 2, brought to you by Zinc VC and produced by Birdlife Media. We'll be taking a pause before the next series as we focus on launching our Warrior Women Speaker Agency and Consultancy, which we have been piloting for the last six months. If you're interested in having a Warrior Women Speak at your company event or conference, or want to know more about the ways in which we support organisations to grow in more conscious ways, you can email me at carla at warriorgroupconsulting.com. A huge thank you to all of you for listening and sharing and rating and to our sponsor and of course to our guests who once again prove that women can and importantly are changing the world. Mm